We have another prayer request that just came in here. If you'll notice on your prayer page tonight, there's some lines there where you can write some additional things in. And if you would include this name on your prayer page for your prayers this week, uh, Alan Chu. Did I pronounce that right? Alan Chu. And he is a uh, son of a friend of uh, the Cirillos. They're a friend of theirs who was in an auto accident today. And uh, the car was totaled, and they don't know his condition. So uh, please pray for him, if you would. That's Alan Chu. All right, let's open our Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. And it seems like almost forever since we were last in the book of Ephesians. And uh, we rejoice that we have the opportunity to uh, open God's Word and and speak from this book again tonight because it's one of the most important uh, books that we have in the New Testament, and I think it's important for us to study it. As we've been talking about this third chapter, we've been discussing the unveiling of a mystery. And this is a mystery that saved people all the, time, all the way from the time of Adam right up to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ did not know about. And this mystery is something that God had in his mind from before the foundation of the world. It was a way in which his people could come into an intimate relationship with him, the most intimate of all. And also it's the way in which the gospel is spread throughout the world. When Noah was building the ark, and he spent 120 years building that ark, he was building something that was emblematic of the safety that we have in Jesus. And yet Noah didn't know about the mystery that we're going to talk about tonight, or we've been studying. When Abraham was given a promise and entered into a covenant with God, he didn't know about this mystery. And when Moses was given the law on Mount Sinai, and when he began, uh, began to build the tabernacle, a place there where they could worship Jehovah God, Moses did not know about this mystery. And David, who recorded uh, many psalms of praise and worship, did not know about this mystery. And when we think about uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Hosea, the great prophets of the Old Testament, this mystery was not revealed to them. And so it's no wonder that Paul here in the book of Ephesians speaks about this and he's awestruck at the prospects that God has chosen him to reveal this mystery. And in verse 8 of this chapter, chapter 3, he says, Unto me, who am least than the le- less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul was a person who felt unworthy to reveal this great mystery of God. What is the mystery? What is it that had been kept secret for so long? Well, you know what it is, I think. In chapter 5, verse 32, Paul said, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so this mystery is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of the body of Jesus Christ, his church, and also that the faithful of his church will be a part of his bride. Now, as I said, the prospect of Paul revealing this mystery uh, was simply almost dumbfounding to him. He was awestruck by this because his greatest heroes of the Old Testament weren't given the information that he was given. And so God revealed the mystery to him. Well, that brings us up to this subject that I want to talk about tonight, because in these verses that we're going to read this evening, our text verses, Paul bows his knee in praise and prayer, and he worships God. And he asks for a revelation to these Ephesian Christians about what God is doing in the world through his church, what God will do 
in the world through his church and the part that these Ephesians play in that. Now, several weeks weeks ago when we studied the first chapter, I, I preached three messages on the blessings of intercessory prayer. And the reason that I preach those messages is because Paul prayed a great prayer in the first chapter. And in this chapter that we're reading now, in this third chapter, Paul also prays a great prayer. And so the subject of the, of the message tonight is the second powerful prayer of Ephesians. So this is the second prayer. Now, what we're going to do tonight is just have an overview of what Paul has to say here. In the coming weeks, I'm going to come back. We're going to break this down, and we're going to talk about the different elements of this prayer. But let's stand, if you would, now for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read this prayer. Uh, Actually, we're going to start with verse number 12, which is just a little bit prior to the beginning of the prayer. But it has bearing on what I want to say tonight. Verse number 12, it says, "...in whom we have boldness..." and access with confidence by the faith of him, whereof I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great prayer that we're studying tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for the revelation of the mystery of the Apostle Paul that he in turn gives to us. We thank you, Lord, for your church. And as Paul so ably states in this scripture, that you receive glory through the church. And Lord, we want to regard the church as highly as you do regard it. And we just thank you for the privilege that we have of being a part of your church. Bless this sermon tonight. Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've never stopped to count how many prayers there are in the Bible. There are a lot of long prayers in the Bible, and there are short prayers in the Bible. You remember when Peter tried to walk on the water and he began to sink, he prayed a very short prayer. He just said, Lord, save me. And that's one of the shortest prayers that we have in the Bible. I don't exactly know how many prayers that are recorded in the Scriptures. But here's one thing I do know. When I read a great prayer, I can recognize it. And of all the prayers that are prayed in the Bible, perhaps aside from the prayers that Jesus himself prayed, this might be the most powerful prayer that's recorded in Scripture, beside the ones of Jesus. And before we get through with this study in the next, in the coming weeks, six or seven weeks it's going to take to get through this prayer, I think you'll understand why I say this is such a great prayer. Now, when you think about it, what Paul has to say in verse number 12 is the whole crux of what salvation is about. Everything that we could ever learn about God boils down to this one all-important statement, and that is that we might have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. What salvation is all about is accessing God. Now, this evening, as we think about this second powerful prayer of Ephesians... I want to speak to you first about the approach of prayer, the approach of prayer. Now, somebody here tonight, I don't know, you might be thinking, 
Well, you've already preached three messages on prayer in this series, so why are you preaching on prayer again? I don't think that you can talk too much about prayer. I don't think you can preach too many messages about prayer because prayer is the way that we find power with God and it's the way that we access God. Now, this is what Paul is talking about. Access, access to God is the most important thing for a Christian. We're looking for access to our Heavenly Father and prayer is that access. Now, in these verses, I think that Paul is showing us a method of approach in our prayers. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he outlined a method by which they would pray. And I think that Paul is doing the same thing here. He's not telling us what to pray, but he is telling us how we can approach God. Now, first of all, I think that he shows us that we are to come with courage. And the word that Paul uses in verse number 12 is boldness. And boldness means to come without fear. We're not to fear to come into the presence of God. And the fear that I'm talking about is not reverential fear, because certainly we we ought not to ever come into the presence of God in a presumptuous manner. We ought not ever swagger into the presence of God like we can demand anything that we want from Him, and God has to answer what we have to say. And folks, I think presumption is actually the bane of the Christian world today. If you turn on your television on Sunday afternoon and you be, or Sunday nights when you get home from church and you begin to watch some of these faith healers, there's where you will find presumption at its very worst. Because there you'll see religious fakes who are commanding the power of God. And they are insisting that God do something because they say so. Now that's presumption. And it's not reverential fear of God. But that's not the kind of boldness and the courage that Paul is speaking about here. This means to come to God without apprehension. We ought not to be timid when we come into the presence of God. There ought not to be any weakness in us as we come into the presence of God. You see, we have a relationship with God based upon His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God has given us the right to come to him in prayer. And that's where all the rights come from. He's already granted that right. And so we ought not to cower in fear when we come before God as if God is a tyrant and that we have to do something to appease God before he'll be merciful to us. Prayer's not that way. Prayer is fellowship. You don't have fellowship with somebody that you are afraid of. Boldness means this ability to to just to freely speak your mind when you come into the presence of God. You know, I, I had reverential fear of my father. I did. But I wasn't afraid to speak with him about desires and things that I needed to deal with and problems that I have. I didn't cringe in fear every time that my father walked by. And and if that's what I did, I would never desire fellowship with him. I I would be afraid of him in that way. But it was this ability that I could speak with him one-on-one, that I had no inhibitions about what I needed to speak with him about. That's what made me desire his fellowship. And that is exactly the way it is with God. There's no fear to come to God with anything that we need to ask him. He'll talk with us about that. So we are to approach God in a particular way. We are to approach him with this, with this confidence that he's going to hear us and, and, and this uh, boldness that we know that he wants us to come to him with. Then Paul says, secondly, that we can come with confidence. Now, these are two very closely related things. If you look at the meaning of boldness, one of the definitions of it is confidence. And you might think, well, well Paul's being redundant here. 
He uses the word confidence, but the reason he does this is because he's trying to emphasize the point. He's trying to drive this point home. Now, why do you think that Paul would do that? Why would he say this again? I think that if we are to look at our own Christian lives, that we would probably find that one of the greatest failings that we have is in the area of prayer. If we fail in anything that we do as Christians, it's probably right here in this area of prayer. And so when we talk about prayer multiple times, we're talking about something that needs to be repeated. We're pretty slow learners when it comes to prayer. Do you know that? We really are. And so we have to talk about this over and over again. I said a minute ago, you may wonder, why preach a fourth message on prayer? I mean, here, and we just got into the third chapter, and we're already talking about four messages on prayer. Well, my question to you and my question to myself would be, how much have we improved since those first three messages? What kind of a change did it make in us? And even, do we even remember what those three messages were? Probably most of you don't. So I don't think that we ought to complain that Paul emphasizes this point of prayer. When it comes to prayer, you can't say enough about it. And that's because it's one of our biggest failings. So he comes right back here with the word confidence. Why do we have confidence? Well, let me tell you where confidence comes from. Confidence comes from experience. If this was the first time that I ever got up to preach a message tonight, I probably wouldn't stand up here with very much confidence. In fact, uh, I remember preaching the first message that I ever preached, and I was pretty much like all the fellows that I asked to come up here and speak with knees knocking and and, uh, just frightened to get up in front of a crowd. Well, you gain your confidence through your experience. Now, some of you, some of you men, you, you wouldn't dare come up here to speak. And some of you would never dare to get up here and pray publicly. Confidence comes by experience. Now, what, I, what I'm not doing here, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I, I'm just using preaching and prayer, public prayer as an example. I, I'm not belittling anybody who doesn't want to stand up here in this pulpit. Uh, because heaven knows there are lots of people that don't want to do it and would rather not do it. And that's just fine. My whole point here is that confidence is an experiential thing. That's how you gain confidence. And it's also how you gain confidence when you come to God. Now, confidence actually comes by your knowledge of God. The more experience that you have with God, the more confidence that you have to come to Him. Now, this is directly related to how much doctrine you know. How much doctrine determines how much confidence that you have. See, the more you learn about God, the more you learn about the Bible, the many different aspects of God that are taught in the Bible, the better that you'll be acquainted with him and the more experience that you learn with God. Now, if you do this, if you learn all the doctrines of the Bible, you spend all your time studying that and it never leads you to anything practical like knowing who you are and who God is and where you stand in relationship to God, then you've missed the whole point of Bible study because this is the purpose of it, to get us to the place that we know God and we know Him better. Our knowledge of God is to make us know Him. That sounds like a redundant statement too, doesn't it? Our knowledge of God is to make us know Him. Well, what I mean is our knowledge of Him puts us into an intimate relationship. And you need to understand this, that in the Bible, the word know is not just mere like merely knowing facts. It's, it is a relational word. 
It's a word that describes much more than just knowing facts. Now, Paul says himself, that I may know him. And what he meant by that is to have a relationship with God based upon his nature, based upon the way that he is, based upon what he knows about God and the workings of salvation. God said through the prophet Amos, he said, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Well, you can see plainly that the word know there can't just mean mere knowledge because God knows everybody in that way. But what he means is, you only have I had an intimate relationship with. And that's what this word know is about. So that's where our confidence lies to come to God. The confidence is in the knowledge of him. And so why is it then that we preach the entire Bible? I mean, why is it that I just don't get up and preach to you a salvation message every time I get up? Why don't I just preach a message on separation? What kind of things you ought to do as far as Christian living is concerned? The reason I don't do that is because you have to be well-rounded to understand God. You need all of the doctrines of the Word of God so you don't stop like many people do and, and harp and concentrate on those two things all the time. We need all of the Bible in order that we know more about God and have this confidence to come to him as we pray. So that's the approach to prayer. Now, secondly, let's look at the posture of prayer. Verse number 14, it says, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I move on to speak specifically about the posture of prayer, I want you to notice here how access to God is obtained. Verse number 12 said, with confidence by faith of him. And then in verse number 14, Paul uses the words, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our access to God is granted through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you have remembered nothing else at all about those three messages that I preached previously on prayer, please remember this, that there is no right to come to God except through our Lord Jesus Christ. Generic prayers... Are, do not give you a right to come to the presence of God. Generic prayers say that you can come to God without believing in Christ. And folks, a prayer like that is not a good prayer. It's a blasphemous prayer. You don't come to God without Jesus Christ. Now today in public prayers, we never mention the name of God. And the reason that people don't is because they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want anybody to think that it's my attitude that you have to be a Christian in order to talk to God. I don't care if I offend anybody. I'm going to have to tell you this. You can't come to God without Jesus Christ. You might as well be praying to a brick wall. There is no access to God except through Christ. And folks, that doesn't mean just mentioning his name. It means that you have to have a personal relationship with him. It means that you have to be born again. People who are not born again do not have access to God. Now, people believe, though, that you can be so familiar with God that you can flippantly come into his presence. You don't have to have any regard for his precepts. You don't have to worry about how God says this, you're supposed to come, and how, you're, how this is all structured. And, and I believe that preachers preach wrongly when they reduce prayer to a trivial matter. Like, prayer is just coming any way that you want to come. It's just like having a conversation with the old man upstairs. No, God gave commands, if you remember. He gave commands about how to build a tabernacle. He told the people what they were supposed to do in building the temple. He was very strict in his instructions, and he says, you don't deviate from what I've told you. And you know why God told them that? Because he was teaching them something. He was teaching them something about holiness. He was teaching them something about reverence. 
and teaching something about respect. He was teaching something about obedience, about who God is and who you are. Now, we also notice here who Paul addresses. He says, I bow my knees unto the Father. And this is the proper way to pray. pray. Prayer is addressed to the Father, and it goes up in the name of Jesus. Well, now that we know that, what about the posture of prayer? Well, some people would look at these words where Paul says, I bow my knees unto the Father, and they would insist that a proper prayer cannot be made unless you get down on your knees. And they say there is such a strictness to this statement that you will never be praying properly unless you assume a certain posture. Those of you that have ever been in a Catholic church, you know that many Catholic churches are equipped with automatic kneelers. Back in Kentucky, there's an old historic Catholic church. This is the oldest church west, I mentioned this in Sunday school, west of the Alleghenies. And in this church, they have lots of uh, very expensive paintings, very old paintings. And they invite the public to come in to view these paintings and and uh, so they have certain visitation hours. Well, one, one time I was in Bardstown, Kentucky, where this church is located, and I decided that I wanted to go over and just check things out, see this church. Well, I arrived after the visiting hours, and I stepped inside the church, and I didn't know it, but they were, they were observing a, 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 a Saturday evening mass. And so I, I was standing in the back of the church, and just about the time that I walked in, there was this loud thud, boom, and 300 people went straight down to their knees. Those kneelers came down, and everybody started kneeling. Well, there's only one guy standing in the church, and that's me. I'm in the back, I'm standing up. But I tell you, folks, I wasn't about to bow my knees in a pagan worship. And uh, so I, did, I didn't bow down. But some people think that's what it's all about. It's the posture of prayer, and it's necessary that you get down on your knees in order to pray. I read recently, some of you see the article in the paper, it wasn't too long ago, about the Catholic churches that were having an argument because they were taking some of the automatic kneelers out and they weren't going to use them anymore. And so they were having an argument about what's the proper way to worship, proper way to pray. And so they were disputing about this, whether they should take those out. Well, the posture of prayer is not wrapped up in where you place your body. Because when you read the Bible, you'll find that there are people who prayed standing, There are people who pray kneeling. Many times you find people who are prostrated on the ground with their face down, and that's the way that they prayed. So the question is, is there a certain way, is there a certain posture to praying? Well, let's notice a couple of things about this. First of all, pray without formality. And one way of praying with formality is to be concerned about the physical posture of the body. Now, as I said, some people think that kneeling is the way to go, and you can't pray unless you're in a kneeling position. But there are also other ways in which you can pray with formality, and you need to watch out for these. Now, one of these methods is praying in a liturgical manner. Does everybody know what liturgy means? Well, let me, okay, most, some of you do. Let me explain to you what liturgy is. Liturg, liturgy just simply means a prescribed ritual or a rite for public worship. And so a liturgy can be something as simple as repeating things at a particular time. It might be repeating after the pastor, repeating after a priest. It can be reading publicly from a book that's uh, particularly written for the purpose of public worship. You may remember in our church here, uh, some time ago, we used to do responsive readings. That's where a leader would stand up, and before the sermon, we would read one verse of Scripture, and the congregation would read the next verse of Scripture. Well... 
Many Baptists won't do that because that comes too close to a liturgy for them. In your hymn book, I'm not sure if it's in this hymn book, but many hymn books in the back have responsive readings. And many Baptists will not do those responsive readings because that's too much like a liturgy. So in many of the formal churches, like the Catholic Church, Lutheran Church, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and so forth, they will use a liturgy in their worship. Well, I don't think that a liturgy is inherently wrong. The fact that it's a liturgy doesn't necessarily make it wrong. But I do think, if you believe that the liturgy is the way that you have to come to God, and that's the way that you worship God, that's the way you pray, and you can't do without it, then you're wrong. Because prayer is not that kind of formality. Prayer is not formalism. Now, a liturgy would definitely be wrong when it contains heretical practices. For instance, the Hail Marys and repeating the rosary. That's a liturgy, and that is a diabolical practice. I think it's right next to paganism myself. This is the very type of thing that Jesus was talking about just before he gave the model prayer when he was teaching the disciples in Matthew chapter 6. He said, but when ye pray... Use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. And so this repeating phrases over and over and over again, especially some kind of prescribed phrase, that is not worship. That's not true prayer. And this is not a part of my sermon, but I'm going to throw it in anyway. I just, I'm just thinking about this, that in many churches today that have abandoned our old hymns and so forth, when they, when they sing choruses, they will repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat, and it goes on and on and on and on. Most of it's not even worth repeating, but they repeat it anyway. You're getting out of the realm of the proper kind of worship there. These are the vain repetitions that Jesus is talking about. And then I might also add to that that... The Lord never intended for us to take things like the model prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, and make that our prayer. That's not our prescription for worship. It's not our prayer to repeat that in our public worship. Jesus was simply using that to teach us how to pray, what kinds of things to pray for. So he doesn't intend for us to use that. So formalism, that's not the right way to come to God. Now, secondly, pray without familiarity. Don't pray with formalism, but also don't become too familiar in your prayers. Now, this takes us back to what I was talking about earlier. Prayer is not like speaking to an old man in bib overalls with a corncob pipe. That's, that's not how you come to God. I don't know if you remember this or not. About a year or so ago, I preached a message, What if God was just like us? And you remember there was this television show where, I don't remember what the name of it was, but... There were different characters in the show that represented God. And it was supposed to be showing us that God can be just like anybody. And so God would appear as a punk rocker with spiked hair and studs all over his body. Or God might appear as a bag lady. God may appear as some little kid, some rotten little kid or something like that. A few years ago, there were some movies, a series of movies that George Burns was in, where he played God. I think the name of one was Oh God or something like that. God is not like that. God is not just like us. And we don't have the liberty to come into God's presence in just any way. And folks, I think familiarity has a lot to do with the way that we dress when we come to church. Sometimes we just become too familiar with God. And so we come into God's house like we're going to the beach, like we're going to the park for a ball game or something like that. Well, 
here's what happens when you... I believe in Christian liberty, but when you take Christian liberty too far, you can become lax and you can become lazy. And when you get like that, your worship ends up being flippant and your prayers end up being flippant prayers. That's when the reverence goes out of it. So if you want to worship God and you want to pray rightly, remember this, the reverence of prayer. Write that down. Come to God in reverence. Now, I want to go back to verse 14 again. It says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is bowing the knee? What does he mean by that? Well, he's not actually talking about physical posture. He's speaking about the attitude of prayer. You see, it's like this. You can get down on your knees, and you can pray, and you can be in that posture, and your heart can be as far from God as it is from here to L.A., you may not have any connection with God at all. You can go into a church where there's stained glass windows and there's candles burning everywhere. There's ominous organ music playing in the background. And your heart can be as cold as Icelandic cod. Now, Paul's speaking about here how you feel deep down inside. He's speaking of reverence and godly fear. Well, some people think it's the atmosphere of the church. That's what's going to make me righteous and holy and pious to God. And so there are people who come into the church and they speak in whispers and they don't make very much noise at all. They're quiet like the church mouse and they think they're holy and they're reverent and they're close to God because of the surroundings. And as soon as they step out that door, they sound like they had been in the Navy or the Marines for half their life. That's reverence for the building. It's not reverence for God. But God's talking about reverence of the heart. So bow the knee. What this means is to respect God, to be humble when you come into the presence of God. So again, I say that proper prayer is knowing who God is and who you are. God is not just like you, but you'd better be trying to be just like him. That's the real posture of prayer. It's not where your body is, it's where your heart is. Now thirdly, as we finish up this evening, I want to talk about the effect of prayer. There are three effects of prayer. I'm just going to mention these briefly because we're going to come back to this in later lessons. We're going to deal with these specifically and in detail. But what are the effects of approaching God? When you approach God in the right way, when your posture is correct to come to God, what are the effects of that? Well, first of all, the first one is internal strength. In verse 16, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. I'm going to have a lot to say about the inner man next week. So what's the impetus for Paul writing this particular verse? Well, I think the answer to that is back up in verse 13. In verse 13 he says, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, if you were a Christian living in Ephesus at the time that Paul wrote this, what would you have seen? What would you have seen in Ephesus as a Christian and you're reading Paul's letter? Well, you go back to the book of Acts. And we spend a lot of time in the book of Acts talking about Paul and the time that he spent in Ephesus. And Ephesus is where he spent the second most time of any other city that he visited. Well, what happened to Paul when he was in Ephesus? Well, if you remember the story, Paul began to preach and he was giving out the gospel. And as he did, lots of people started getting saved. And this began to affect the trade of the people in the city, particularly the trade of the silversmiths. Now, what these silversmiths were doing, they were making images and little trinkets of the goddess Diana, and they were selling these images. Well, when people started getting saved, they stopped buying those little trinkets. 
They turned away from the false gods, and so that began to affect the economy of the whole city. And so that sparked a riot. There was a huge riot in Ephesus, and Paul talks about that. And then later, we read in 1 Corinthians that Paul says he fought wild beasts at Ephesus. And that's one of the things they used to do to Christians back then. I mean, they just put them into the arena with all of these wild beasts so they could be eaten. So you're a Christian in that particular time. And if you're living in that time at Ephesus, what do you need more than anything else? I think you need the courage to live a Christian life, don't you? You've got to have courage in the face of all of that. So Paul says, don't faint at my tribulation. So what these people need is an extra measure of grace not to faint. When they see everything that's happening to Paul, wild beasts and riots and things like that going on, the first temptation is pick up and head for the hills. Let's get out of here. We're just going to lose our lives. And so Paul comes back with what he's talking here. Don't faint because of that. So his prayer, praying properly, talking to them about prayer, the, the effect of prayer is to have inner peace. It's to have strength. It's to have resolve. How is it, folks, that Christians bear up under unbearable situations? How do you do it? Through prayer. What do you do when you've got sickness and heartache and problems in your families? How do you get through all of that? The answer is prayer. That's the only thing you can go to. And if you don't have God, you don't have any strength. There's nothing to lean on. Folks, there is no Christian who chooses suffering, but suffering comes. And so you have to be able to go through it. But then why else do you need strength? Well, it's not just the suffering. There's temptation out there, isn't there? We talked about temptation and the devil on Sunday morning. There's lots of that out there. There, There's moral choices that you have to make. What do you do when you go to work and all the people at work are doing something they're not supposed to be doing? They want to involve you in it. They want to get you into the office pool. And they want to get you into all their things that they're doing. And you're going to have to make a choice. And sometimes those choices are hard, and you need strength to be able to do that. What about your witnessing? You've got to have strength and some courage. I mean, when you know, I mean, you've got it in your mind that when you go to this person or to this door to talk to somebody, they may slam the door in your face, they may ridicule you, they may laugh at you, and you know it's coming. What do you do? You've got to have courage. You've got to have some strength, and prayer gives you that. There's inner strength that comes through prayer. So the effect of prayer is to have inner strength to deal with all those kinds of issues. Now, the second thing here about prayer and effect of it is indwelling faith. Now, back in verse 17, Paul says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, folks, there is a very important aspect of this word dwell that we need to talk about in this verse. Because in the Bible, there is a word for dwell that means to live in a place as a stranger. When Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of promise, the Bible tells us that he went and he dwelt there. And he was a stranger there. He was a sojourner in that land. That's not the word that we're using here. This word actually means to settle down. It means means to live in a place permanently as a permanent resident. And that's what Christ does when he comes into our heart. He doesn't move in for a short time. He doesn't move in looking for another place to live. He comes to dwell. He lives in your heart by faith. He's going to stay. And really, maybe you didn't even know this, but this is one of the very good verses in the Bible. If you understand the word dwell here, it's one of the very good places in the Bible that talks about eternal security. Because Christ is not going to come into your heart and move out because you lost your salvation. This word dwell here, dwell in your heart by faith, means he takes up a permanent residence in your life. 
So the idea of this part of the prayer is that Christ would begin to control them, that now Christ is their rightful owner. Paul and Peter, James, Jude, all of them use the word servant as they talk about themselves. They are the servants of Jesus Christ. And the word servant actually means a slave. And so what he's talking about here is we belong to somebody. Christ is our rightful owner. And so we pray acknowledging him as the rightful owner, and we recognize that Christ lives in us by faith. Well, lastly, lastly, what do we get as an effect of prayer? Incomparable satisfaction. And there's inner strength, there's indwelling faith, and incomparable satisfaction. Satisfaction comes from experiencing God, like I was talking about earlier. Have you ever prayed like this, that you prayed, and then when you were finished praying, you had this feeling come over you that all is well? I have. I hope that you have, because that's what prayer is all about. Peace and calm assurance that comes over you because God has things in his control. The very day that I was writing this message, now, most of you know I Messages sometimes are written a month in advance. The very day that I was writing this, when this happened to be a little bit longer than a month ago, probably six, seven, eight weeks almost ago, the very day I was writing the sermon was the day that Carrie Reesing sent me an email. And in her email, she said, Would you pray because the doctor thinks my baby has Down syndrome? When she wrote me that email, you know what she said? She said, This is not the end of the world. And then she followed that up with another email where she said, whatever happens is to God's glory. How do you do that? How do you react that way when you have some bad news, the worst possible news perhaps that you could get? For a mother, it would be, wouldn't it? What do you do when you get news like that? Well, here's what a Christian does. A Christian prays. And then a Christian gets assurance from their prayers that God is in control. And God always does all things well. And so you know this, you're in God's hands. And so you begin to experience incomparable satisfaction. So this is a powerful prayer. The effects are internal strength, indwelling faith, incomparable satisfaction. Now let me conclude with the last statement for your listening sheet tonight. The last statement, prayer helps us realize the fullness of God. In verse 19, Paul writes, And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Look at the first part of that. And to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Doesn't that seem to be a paradox? How do you know something that passes knowledge? I'm not even sure that Paul fully understood his own statement. How do you know something that passes knowledge? Well, in the 20th verse, he said, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, when you ask something from God, what you do... You ask God about something, and you have your mind on the immediate thing. You only see the consequences and, and only the connections here within a very limited frame of reference. But God sees it all. God sees the long-range forecast. So we're asking in part when we come to God, but when he answers, he answers in the fullness of what we ask for. We only ask in part, but he fulfills that fullness. So he goes above and beyond what we know. And when God answers prayer, there aren't any contingencies that he hasn't thought of. He already knows what's going to happen way out there. And so that means whenever you come to God in prayer, it's always going to be when he answers the absolute best answer that you could get. It'll always be that way. 
And that's why you have peace with prayer. The reason is what looks bad now may not be so bad at all when all things are considered and God knows all things. Well, I thank the Lord that he knows what we don't know. We don't know everything. I don't even really want to know everything because faith is a much better position for a Christian to be in than infinite knowledge. Infinite knowledge, boy, I tell you, some things you probably don't want to know, I tell you. Maybe that's why somebody said, what you don't know can't hurt you. And that may be true in the physical world, but in the spiritual, it's what you know about Jesus Christ that's all important. And what you know about him is the thing that will always bless you. And that's why it's so great to have access to God, because that's how we find all these things out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the time we have spent tonight. We thank you, Lord, for Wednesday evenings for a prayer service. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us the opportunity and the privilege of prayer. Help us, Lord, that we might come to you in the right way, boldness with confidence. May we have the right posture in prayer, that is, that our hearts would be right, that we approach you with heartfelt conviction, and, Lord, that we would approach you in a reverential way. We thank you for the effects of prayer, for the strength and the peace and all of these things that you give us as we ask you for what we need. You're the great God. You know all contingencies. And as your word says, you do all things well. Bless in this invitation tonight, Lord. We thank you for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we sing.